This is Isaka's Page 2 Podcast. Thanks, everyone, for joining us today. I'm Lisa Villanueva, Isaka's IT Governance Professional Practices Lead. We have Blake Curtis here with us today, whose expertise includes cybersecurity auditing, IT governance, and GRC. Blake, thank you so much for joining me today. How are you? I am doing pretty well, Lisa. It's nice to meet you, and thanks for actually inviting me to the show. Oh, we're so glad to have you. Uh, talk to me a little bit about where you are today. How's the weather? Uh, the weather is actually bad. I was uh, a little scared that, you know, the, this podcast may get cut off because we had some um, some heavy thunderstorms and potential tornadoes. But, you know, we're going to pray that doesn't happen. Oh, well, OK. We're going to we're going to make sure that this works out. <laughs> I tell you, the weather has been crazy everywhere. Yeah. Right. So we're just we're just so excited to have you. Uh, what I want to do is just make a quick start of it. You know, we're going to jump into some really good questions. Uh, you are a cybersecurity governance advisor and research scientist. So my first question is, what is the biggest risk in cybersecurity and governance today? I would say the biggest risk period outside of just being technical and in cyber would just be interpretation. I mean, if you think about it, you could give a certain control to 10 different professionals. It could be people in executive, people are in IT, people in cyber, and they're going to have their own interpretation of it. And I think that interpretation of it is the biggest issue. So, you know, whether you're actually dealing with internal threats or external threats, it has to come across someone's desk. And so what I've just experienced in previous roles is we're looking at the same control, but due to our various backgrounds, we're just not looking at it the same way. We're not implementing it the same way. And then that kind of breeds the thought of, well, how consistent is each organization when they look at those controls? Right, right. And it also becomes a challenge when you're trying to have the business and the IT functions speak as right. well to get those two uh, on the same page. My, my, my biggest concern is like, like I said, going back to the 10 professionals example, if I need to interpret that intent of the cybersecurity control and receive a, a myriad of different answers and, and rationale, you know, most of that is just derived from anecdotal evidence, um, personal experience. And I think that light, lack of citations and scientific backing is often a detriment to our profession because we it sometimes comes from a place of emotion instead of logic. And, and basically, we're not using a lot of objective evidence. You got to remember that cybersecurity, GRC, and audit is very young. It hasn't been around that long. And we, we're largely unregulated because we don't have a lot of certifications um, that are actually backed by the government. So I believe that adopting an evidence-based and scientifically supported frameworks like COVID, NIST, and ISO can give you a robust culture of objectivity and collaboration, but just also just mutual understanding. Right, right. And would you say that, you know, you've talked about the frameworks and you've been involved with, you know, an amalgamation of cybersecurity governance and control frameworks, you know, and you've developed assurance programs for enterprises using that. Like, what are some of the key frameworks or standards that governance professionals can draw upon to make that happen, you know, to make a, a solid cybersecurity and governance framework? All right. This is actually a pretty easy one. Um, my, my thought, my own biased perspective here is if you adopt COVID-2019, you've also adapted a cybersecurity best practice. For example, you could take a random governance and management objective like build, acquire, and implement. And then it has a set of processes, which that's what we know as governance professionals. But as IT and cyber professionals, they know those as controls. And each one of those controls will map to those industry best practices like NIST. You, know, you have the International Organization for Standardization, which is ISO. 
Center for Internet Security, which gets specific into benchmarks. And then for some of the red teams and blue teams, they have the MITRE attack framework. So the, the biggest issue I see with all of those frameworks, though, is that you got to have the professionals who understand how to map, connect those strategic, operational, and tactical frameworks. And that becomes very confusing and irritating for many cybersecurity and governance practitioners. So for me personally, what would have taken me years to learn all of these frameworks became more manageable when I mastered 853, when I mastered COSO and internal controls and enterprise risk management. And Lisa, the question I always ask myself is, why so many frameworks? Do I choose a random one here? Do they have any similarities? What are the gaps or deltas between them? And what I've learned is I, I just kind of love fell in love with governance. So I then pursued my PhD in that. And through that scientific research, I discovered that specific frameworks just have particular objectives and they're applied at different organizational tiers. Right, right. And I think that because there is some overlap, I would say, then you get that bang for the buck. You talked about that evidence earlier and being able to provide that evidence once and have it apply across a number of frameworks or standards is really what's going to make people more efficient in putting forth that that cybersecurity framework. Most definitely. And I think that's the thing that's confusing to a lot of people. They like to choose one framework over another, but they don't understand that it has a certain intent. If you if we started at the, just kind of going back to the publication itself, when I think of strategic control governance frameworks, we would start at the top and you would start with common frameworks like the COVID-2019, but you, you could also use the COSO Enterprise Risk Management Framework. Those, in my opinion, establish the organization's effective governance for cybersecurity. It's the baseline, it's the exigence, it starts there. And so, you look at COSO's enterprise risk management, and it's a little less specific than it is COVID. So I still lean towards COVID, but it still provides high level guidance, still lays out those principles, those sub principles, and what they call their point of focus or considerations. And to me, if you start there, you're not so just focused on the technical controls, but you're also inculcating that culture, performance objectives, strategies, and also the other relevant components. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, in your article, you've written so many in this in this vein, but in particular, the latest one on cyber governance, you talk about many of those things and really bringing those frameworks together. Um, you mentioned COBIT, and we know that, uh, I think you mentioned BAI as well, uh, that build, acquire, and implement. Um, when we start talking about managing critical assets and things of that nature, you know, there are areas within NIST and ISO that really tie into that as well. Exactly. I mean, we all we start out strategic, and I think people get so focused just on the controls, Lisa. But in my opinion, COVID is the only framework out there that once you put in a, a control, it considers what they call the enablers for the old school COVID five people. Right. But, you know, in my in my realm, we know those as the components. And so for every control, it's basically there's seven of them. You have the the principles, policies, and frameworks. You have the organizational structures, which we know as RACI. Then we actually have the process, which we know as being the governance and management objectives in COVID, but those would be the controls that are in ISO and NIST and SIS. And after that, you have your information inputs and your outputs. You know, when you're implementing, what is the output of that? You Then you have your people culture uh, and your skills. You have your application services. And then you talk about your competencies. You have to consider all of those elements when you implement a control because it's not going to take care of itself. <laughs> 
Absolutely. So Blake, talk to us a little bit about what does that look like in a more tactical sense, that cybersecurity framework and, and some specific controls. Maybe talk about you know, critical infrastructure or, right. or asset management for that matter. All right. What, typically what I do is I always advise from a consulting perspective, from also an advising perspective, is that you want to start out with those design factors. And so you take your organization through the design factors. You know, you have your enterprise strategy. Those have various archetypes. Is that a slow mover? And they're, they're an established company because they're going to have a different risk appetite. They may not want to take on a lot of risk. They may not want to be innovative because they've been around for a long time. But then that culture will change if they've been around for a long time, but their profits start to really bottom out or they just start to baseline out. Then you may actually adopt a different sense. Once you get a feel for that strategy, you can start digging into their goals. You want to take that business plan. Um, that business plan is going to translate into the portfolio. What are the major applications and services that support them? Once you figure that out, then you need to look at previous audit reports, risk profile. Where do they sit at right now in the organization? And then once you start doing that, along with the other design factors, those translate into governance and management objectives. Those governance and management objectives turn into controls. And that's where people get lost. So once you take those controls, you're now able to operationalize them. So if you look at the operational level frameworks like ISO and NIST, you know, we're a little bit more familiar to that with the IT and cybersecurity professionals. They know ISO and NIST and they offer excellent guidance for, you know, implementing. It gives you a good system of controls, good cybersecurity practices. But the only issue there, even at the operational level, they're agnostic. So, you know, they really focus on the genre of the technologies, not on the actual vendors or the organizations that create and support those technologies. And so what you get there, Lisa, is you get a lack of granularity that's supposed to enable cybersecurity audit and GRC professionals to apply those practices. And that's where I was saying earlier that that's where the misinterpretation, because you could have someone in cyber, you know, just doing pen testing, who is a system administrator, and they could have an auditor. And those are two different lanes of competencies. One is the implementer, one's more of a diagnostician. They're looking at their control differently. So although it does not provide, you know, that explicit guidance for specific operating systems, you know, networking infrastructure, programming languages and cloud, that's when we can start getting even more tactical. And so in the publication, we talked about what does it look like if you go past NIST and ISO? And then that brought us into that tactical framework like Center for Internet Security. This is like really the best framework out there for auditors. You see a lot of auditors who do third-party risk assessments who give out ISO 27001 and 2, but if they adopt Center for Internet Security, it has the actual step-for-step -step audit guidelines in there. And so they take those controls that are so vague, so nuanced, and they tie them to the actual configuration parameters within those operating systems. That's beautiful because you know exactly what you're getting. And from a continuous monitoring perspective, those sys benchmarks are applied to various applications you're talking palo alto windows you're talking linux and so think about that if you can get those benchmarks applied to your infrastructure and then they are mapped back to nist and iso and then mapped back to COVID, now you're getting that assurance from the board level to the code level Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, you talked a little bit about the IT audit approach, and it gets me thinking a little bit about what risk is posed if the current approach to IT auditing 
what impact would that have on our ability to identify all of the assets, um, be able to identify our critical infrastructure, whether it's internal to an enterprise or for our nation, for that matter? You know, that audit approach, how, how will that impact uh, or what risks does that pose? I mean, that's a great question. That is exactly what my research is on. I'm actually conducting a study called the Next Generation Cybersecurity Auditor, and that's an international study that I'm putting out right now. Where that risk began was in 1956 with electronic data processing. And so there was um, Haskin and Sales before it became Deloitte. There were three primary. Uh, there was a principal, there was a partner, and there was a managing director. And they all sent out communications to you know, the, inter the International Internal Auditors Association, what we call I IIA. And said, look, um, all of our accounting machines have now been mechanized. So what we were doing for reasonable assurance and auditing now depends on technical competency. And so that really gave birth into, you know, Isaac in 1969. Isaac used to be called EDPAA, which is Electronic Data Processing Auditors Association. Mm -hmm. and, and so with that, the one thing, and this is a, a little bite of history, the reason why Isaac has stepped up is because they reached out to IA back in 1967 and said, hey, we need to form research to basically span the nation and come up with audit techniques because we don't have the professionals to do it. I did not go with that at first. But what's weird is five years later, IAA conducted a national research with IBM and Stanford Research Institute, left us out of it. I'm still heard about that. They left us out of it. <laughs> you know, Isaac said, no worries, we'll just come up with our own. And then a couple of, a couple of years later, came out with the CISA. The CISA's purpose was to amalgamize that IT auditor role and the, the IT professional role. Why? There was no government backing. There was no standardization there. And there was a huge, significant gap in academia. If you remember, you know, most of our auditors come from accounting and audit backgrounds, mm -hmm. CPAs, licensed at the state and federal level. That did not transfer over when you became an IT auditor. There is no state and federal backing there. Um, I'm not sure if there should be. But remember, there's a difference between a license and a certification. Right. A license yeah. is there to protect the people from incompetent practitioners and sustain the integrity, while a certification is going to endorse those skills for you and separate you from people who are less skilled. I always ask myself, you know, what is the pass forward for auditing? Because if you look at the common cosmetologist or a barber or a house inspector, all of those have licenses and they have to have those to practice. But as an IT auditor, I just need that certification. I need to have a good reputation and I'm good. But if I lose my certification, it doesn't mean I can't practice. But if my wife loses hers, yeah, I mean, I have to pick up a second job. So it, it is something that I think warrants a bigger discussion, um, both in just IT and audit. But what's the path forward? Because what we have right now is gaps going on with modern technologies. But what does it look like for Industry 4.0 and emerging technologies? Right. And that brings to mind the idea of, you know, people who have a lot of experience in a particular area um, versus whether they've got a lot of exposure. And talk to me a little bit. You, in some of your writings, you talked about that there's a difference between years of experience and years of exposure. So how does that right. impact the profession? I, I think you'll love this one. It took me a while to figure out what is experience. I used to ask people, you know, how experienced are they? They always gave me time, time spent on Earth. Oh, I have X amount of years and I've been doing it for so long. And I, I start thinking about it. I'm like, well, when I was in high school, I always remember there was people who fell 12th grade eight or nine times. Oh, and no. by definition, they're way more experienced than me <laughs> at 12th grade. So really? is, is, that, is that the way we want to quantify things? Mm -hmm. And so throughout my research, I start digging into 
why that phenomenon started. There really is not an objective way to measure skills in the business sense. But where there are objective ways are in sports and in music. So if you look at those professionals, there is a framework. There is measurement. You look at the Olympics. They don't compare one person to another. They compare them to the actual records. And so that is in a lot of established professions, but that's not an IT audit. That's not in cyber. So when you look at years of exposure and years of experience, they say it has to be comprised of domain-specific expertise. In other words, there's no such thing as a cybersecurity expert. Within that cybersecurity domain, there's over 30 sub-disciplines from vulnerability analytics to IT auditor. And for you to be an expert in that, you have to have knowledge, skills, and abilities. And from a psychology research perspective, we break that down into three realms. There's declarative knowledge. Declarative knowledge is just you knowing book knowledge. You've met that person, right? They can spit out books, not knowledge, principles, definitions. Um, an, an analogy I like to give is when you took your license. When you did your license, there was a written test or you took a computer-based test, depending on which area you took that in. But you were not guaranteed to be on the streets at that point because they said, Blake just has declarative knowledge. So what's next? So well, I need to see his procedural knowledge. What can he actually do? And so then they would actually watch me in the car and I would drive and then I would get my license. And, you know, a few months later, there's still that little bit ambivalence. Like, I hope I'm not going to hurt anybody. I hope I'm still doing good. But after a while, that procedural knowledge turns into a state of call automaticity. Automaticity is just called habit forming. We all fall into this. We get into this very routine, habitual practice at work. We don't really think we just do. But there's a risk with that. You're not learning if you stay in that realm. So when you think about years of experience and years of exposure, someone could be working for 10 years. And what we asked in the survey is, you know, how many hours do you work out of the day? Most people say eight. But here's the here's the kicker, Lisa. I asked them, how many hours do you actually spend performing that task? Average is around two to three. So out of a day, you got to consider plannings, meetings and lunch. And when we start averaging it out, someone with five to 10 years experience actually only has 0.9 or to 1.2 years of task based experience. That means actual auditing, actual configuring. So then ask yourself, using years of experience on every job description out there, are you actually creating the workforce gap? Because there's really not a lot of science behind it. Right, right. It's it's fascinating. And it, it really brings to mind not only for people, but for organizations, right? And uh, being able to benchmark how you're actually executing versus what you might think you're doing. So it works for both the organization as well as the people. Continuing on the vein of, of our people, our, our professionals in this space, you know, you've done some research, you mentioned it earlier, um, your studies about creating that next generation of cybersecurity auditor. What, what do we need to do to ensure that that gap is filled? One thing is that we're doing a lot of gatekeeping right now. So we want to use, we're using years of experience as a validator for knowledge. That was actually debunked way back in 1993. So there is the, the father of expertise. His name is Anders Ericsson. And everybody knows about this other guy. And his, his name is Malcolm Gladwell. Malcolm Gladwell was the guy who popularized the 10,000 hour rule. Well, the 10,000-hour rule was actually misinterpreted for over 20 years. And so the 10,000-hour rule is like you either have 10,000 hours of something, you're an expert in it. And what happened is he took Anders Ericsson's research, and Ericsson didn't know about it. And he was basically trying to generalize these eight to 18-year-old violinists. And so they were self-recording how many hours did it take before they per performed proficiently on a certain chord or a certain actual exercise. 
But think about that. That's a violin. That's one of the hardest instruments in the world. And then you got ready to generalize that to everybody. So what happened in 2020 is Anders Ericsson finally spoke out about it and he says, I, this is not my rule. He, the guy actually misinterpreted. And other than that, I hope you guys know that that's influencing job boards right now and job descriptions. So you, you're actually hiring people with a lot of years of exposure, but they may not have the task-based experience. He really revoked what Malcolm said was, he said, think about it. He said, you definitely have more than 10,000 hours experience driving. You don't drive in NASCAR, though. And I was like, wow, you know, I've never really thought about that. Yeah, and it has to do with levels. It, it has to do with levels. But, you know, I we are in a state right now where the average five or six year old has an iPad. I remember me at that age. I was not that intelligent compared to these kids. They're they're amazing. But we have evolutionized where we are as professionals. If you look back in the 1950s and 40s, those first place times that we were getting in the Olympics are the qualifying times for the Boston Marathon. The average person are hitting those numbers. So you got to think, when I'm putting this five years of experience or 10 years of experience over a job description, can I justify it? Or here's what I propose. Why don't you build an objective assessment based on the bullet points on that list, have them take that, and then you filter out that way instead of subjectively looking at a resume. Because as a next-gen auditor, that's going to tell me what on weekend. And I know you probably apply for a job. And what's the one thing they always tell you when you don't get it? Oh, we're sorry. We're going to go with someone who's have more expertise, more qualified. And what, what are they using? Time spent on earth. And there's no science behind it. But imagine if you didn't get that job. It was an objective assessment. And they showed you where you were weekend. You wouldn't go home, you know, second guessing yourself. Be like, they gave me a plan and they told me to apply next year and work on this. You may even share that on LinkedIn today. You're like, hey guys, I didn't get this job, but look what I'm weak in. Uh, can anybody help me? Because I want to go back and apply to this job. In my opinion, that is the birth of a cybersecurity discipline. The cybersecurity expertise is when you enable your professionals, because once you have those conversations, you will build baseline competency here. Everybody's talking about what they're not good in and what they want to improve versus how long they lived on Earth. Yeah, you know, and it's it's really interesting, uh, your research, because as I think about it, we have the same challenges in the risk space. And you're articulating them also for our people and measuring people. And these are kind of intangibles, if you will. And there's always been a challenge around quantifying, right, the risk of something. Uh, and now what you're talking about is trying to quantify or explain to someone uh, in very real terms what it is they need to do to improve uh, to get to a particular level or to be perceived as a certain with a certain level of expertise. Absolutely. And um, what, what I've actually proposed in my study, and, and you guys will like this, so I, I call my conceptual framework, it's called the modern equity experience model. And so what I'm tackling is killing the workforce scout by providing objective measures. Because right now in my study, I have you know people who are late, been doing this job for 30, 40 years, and I have people who've been doing it for three or four years. Their time spent on earth are not affecting their scores. What is affecting their scores is the hours they perform performing the task. And we also broke it down into task iterations. And so what got me doing that, I was actually workshopping with my, with my doctoral advisor named Sundria Miller. And we said, well, let's, let's think about this for a second. So I said, Blake, if we were going to hire people and we looked at someone with five years of experience versus 10 years of experience. I said, well, if we looked at that, the guy with five years of experience probably wouldn't even be considered. I said, but let's dig into that a little bit more. 
She said, okay, you guys here, and when we're looking at this job description, I'm going to ask the guy with 10 years experience, how many times has he done it? He replies, I've done it 50 times. Then I ask the guy with five years experience, how many, he's, how many times he's done it? He's done it 250 times. So now I'm like, okay, what has he been doing with the other five years if this guy younger hasn't been doing it long and does it? So I dug in a little bit more. I said, okay, well, you know, counting up your hours and how many times you work out the week, what is the you know total hour, amount of hours you have? guy with 10 years of experience has only got 5,000 hours. The guy with five years experience has eight. I'm just like, okay, just looking at the number of times you've been doing it in hours, I don't know if I care about years anymore. Now I need to give you a, a fictitious scenario or assessment to assess what you know at this job. To me, that is objectivity. I don't think just grandfathering in someone who's been around that long is an objective way. And it doesn't really breed integrity for the profession. So I, I would start there. But um, the, the one thing I would also say, Lisa, that we are very, very privileged to have is not having licenses gives me and you a very good privilege. You know, we can kind of pivot around the organization. We can explore opportunities. I, I do like that. But there's a there's a risk with that, because if something happens, we're not always on the hook for it. But a licensed professional, they are on the hook. And so you can say that incentivize more ethical behavior. And, and, and lastly, the thing I will say on here as far as the modern equity experience model it is actually derived from about 50 years of psychological research and human factors. We also have audit theory and judgment and decision-making. But I thought those were a little old and I wanted to modernize those. And so I got happy when I found out that NIST had a framework out there. So NIST had a framework, it was 181, called the National Initiative for Cybersecurity Education. And I was like, wow, this is amazing. And so what I was able to do you remember those three levels of knowledge I was telling you about, declarative, procedural, and automaticity. How about they map one for one with NICE? So the declarative knowledge just mapped back to knowledge. The procedural knowledge mapped back to skills. And then that actual ability mapped back to automaticity. I was like, oh, my goodness, that is scientific. Wow. powerful. Yeah. Yeah. And so that, that is what we're proposing because NICE is the objective framework that we can all use. It's all comprised of tasks and work roles. And that way, if you use that and even align it to IT certifications, employers know who they are hiring in an objective sense. Absolutely. And that's how you would introduce equity and objectivity into that hiring and promotion process, right? Based on your background in science. I just I think it's more fair. I think we are at an estate now where using old measures of years of experience, it's not going to be sufficient for Industry 4.0 and these automated threats. And so... You can have all the controls in the world, but if you don't know what your practitioners know, if you don't create that level of transparency, then you may be hiring the wrong people and the wrong practices. And it's not their fault. It's just as a professional, as an industry, we haven't caught up. We're very young. I mean, remember that we didn't have a scientific theory in auditing. Audit theory came out in 1970. It had been around for 1885. It's been around that long. So it's the byproduct of breaches, incidents, and frauds. But what's happening in cybersecurity right now? breaches, incidents, and fraud. Absolutely. We're, we're going to get there. And hopefully, you know, my, my name's on the ticket to help push it there. But that's where I want to go, because if we don't, the population's growing, but the workforce gap is still stifled. Absolutely. And when you talk about gap, you know, I'm going to pivot a little bit. We were talking about people who are in the day-to-day execution, you know, of these tasks or, you know, um, 
putting these frameworks together and implementing the organization. But talk to me a little bit about the board level involvement and what should that be in the process? Uh, most definitely. So remember that we spoke about adopting that governance framework from COVID-2019 down to ISO, down to the tactical frameworks being in CIS and also MITRE. Where I look at this is that those frameworks are also mapped to your NICE work role. So if you look at the National Initiative for Cybersecurity Education, you have your various work roles, you have your tasks, and you have your KSAs. And each one of those KSAs, they also are scientifically backed from my research, from declarative knowledge, procedural knowledge, and automaticity. So what you're able to do at a board level is say, well, when I want to actually justify hiring people, when I want to give them feedback when they don't get the job, or if I want to do in-place promotions, what do I do? Because I'm building my own proprietary things in. And none of those are scientifically bad. Those are very subjective. But remember, we're trying to get to objectivity Objectivity here. And so what I would recommend is, well, all of the job descriptions you have, why are you creating those custom? There is an entire network of professionals out there that are doing this from a peer-reviewed perspective. And I think at that point, you take those nice work roles, you take the task, you work with HR, and you build out the job descriptions, but you also build out an associated assessment. Don't use your professionals to subjectively evaluate these people. Because what happens is you're introducing bias. I'm not assessing you against an objective framework. I'm assessing you against my own myopic experience. I'm saying, this guy reminds me of so-and-so. I want to hire him. Or he's got this certification. I want to hire him. You don't know what that certification does. That certification is not tailored for your organization. But what is an assessment based on that role? So at at the board level, you want to get that nice framework. And what you're going to get a lot of reputation in is like, well, Blake, there's so many work roles in there. There's so many tasks. And NICE doesn't provide a way to measure. That's fine. There is an organization who does, and they come out from the European Commission. They're called called the Skill Framework for Information Age, or SFIA. And so they provide a measurement scale. And that measurement scale with the first two levels are really focused on just that declarative knowledge. Remember, what do I know from a principal perspective, definitions, book knowledge? 85% 85% of all IT certifications are declarative knowledge. They're multiple choice. We're hiring knowledge workers, but we don't know what they can actually do. And what I would actually pray for is to see that first audit certification that has a virtual environment, that has that fictitious environment where I can actually test myself against. And so, you know, once we get there, then we can start relying a little bit more on the certifications. But these are job-specific roles. So at that board level, once you're using SFIA to, uh, to actually measure declarative knowledge, then determine what their higher level roles need to be based on procedural knowledge. If I hire this person, if I hire a manager, what skills do I want to be able to know they have, but even observe? And so keep in mind that the the NICE framework is not just technical. They have communication roles in there. They have reporting roles in there. It gets very analytical. It gets into writing. Those are all very important organizations. But the best way you can have that leap forward for the entire profession is stop creating it in a very proprietary fashion. You can't justify that. And you'll see a lot of companies say that we hire the best professionals. You don't know that. You don't even have a way to measure it. Well, they have these certs. I can tell you right now, most certs out there are not seeing significant performance. Matter of fact, in March 2020, there was a study done by Lewis. And Lewis took the CISSP certification, the gold standard certification. And what he did was he's like, okay, let me take 100 or so professionals and say, the people who do have it and the people who don't, how do they perform this task? There was no significant moderation, which means they did not perform that greater than other people. People are like, well, how? It is a declarative knowledge certification. There are no hands-on tasks. So you measure based on what they know. 
So when you gave them tasks, like, no, that's that's not that alarming. But as a profession, we have to move more towards getting more certifications that have procedural skills in there, getting the hiring practices focusing on observable skills. And then that way we can influence the entire body. And what, what I hope to have in the future is all the IT certifications are mapped back to the KSAs. Um, most of the job descriptions are mapped back to KSAs. And then we give feedback to professionals so they know where they need to go to keep moving this profession forward. I love that. I love that, you know, uh, getting rid of that bias and having that objective measure, whether it be for our cybersecurity controls or whether it be for assessing the talents of our our um, our resources, uh, our people resources in this particular case. So whether it's our assets, um, you know, or our resources, both of which are important to the organization, we want to have those uh, objective measures and, and reduce that bias. So that's so exciting. We're going to really need to have you back because we need to talk <laughs> about performance management next. But <laughs> <laughs> but um, that's all we have time for now. Blake, thank you so much again for taking the time to chat with me. I'm Lisa Villanueva, and I'd like to thank everyone for tuning in. Thanks, everybody. Thanks for having me. Thank you for joining us today for this episode of Page to Podcast. We hope you enjoyed this episode.